0: In the Good and Beautiful God book that we're all reading, we're in chapter 3 this week. So let me release you from any shame or guilt that you may be feeling right now and just say up front that if you haven't read the introduction or chapter 1 or chapter 2, just skip, just skip to chapter 3, all right? Can we just say amen to that? Amen. Yeah, you are free to start in chapter 3. The title of the chapter is God is Trustworthy. Okay, so that's what we're going to get at today, and if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Exodus chapter 15, so Genesis, Exodus, if you meet Leviticus, you've gone too far, Exodus chapter 15, starting kind of later in 15, verse 22, so if you want to find that, you might have to flip a page, Exodus 15, 22. When I was a pastor in Illinois, I had a habit of retreating at this place called the Kiara Center. And have anybody in this room, has anybody been to the Franciscan Renewal Center in Scottsdale? Anybody? Oh, yeah, you two have. Yeah, you've been with me. Yeah. So the Franciscan Renewal Center is like that. It's in Scottsdale. It's just a retreat center. The one in Scottsdale is hosted by uh, what's called friars. Monks that work are called friars beautiful retreat space, super cheap if you're looking for an option in Scottsdale. And the food's actually pretty good. So there's a place like that in Springfield, Illinois called the Kiara Center, but it's a convent. So ladies, not men. And these women are devoted to prayer. Jen has a funny story about this place. She's looking at me right now. One time I booked a retreat for her and her best friend without asking for permission. Guys in the room, don't do that for your wives. It's not a gift, it's a burden. Um, But praise God, I invited her best friend, too, so she has some horror stories to tell you. That place feels haunted at night? A little bit, a little bit. So when I would go, we would go as a staff, or sometimes in really busy seasons, I would head down to this place. And so just picture with me, you walk into their chapel, and it's like 150-foot ceilings, uh, marble columns. There's a gold altar at the front, very, very Catholic in the way that this place looks. If you're like me and you're curious and um, I'll just say a little rebellious, you look for little nook and crannies and doors that might be unlocked in the place. So if you go behind the chapel, there's a bell tower um, that says nothing. It doesn't say don't enter, okay? I wasn't breaking any rules, but check the doorknob and it was open. So I... uh, I went in there. My first time I, I went there, I just wandered into this bell tower, and, and the more you go up into the bell tower, it's like four stories tall, the darker it gets, okay? And then when you get to the top, to get to the bell, that door is locked, just so you know, so <laughs> you can't get out there. But at the very top, there's this stairwell, and honestly, I don't think I've ever seen uh, or, or experienced, I don't think I've ever experienced a more serene, quiet dark place. It was like sensory deprivation. Are you with me? So I got up there. I had to use my phone as a flashlight the first time I was up there and turned off the flashlight and sat down in this stairwell uh, for a time of prayer. And this became a habit of mine. Every time I would go to the Chiara Center, I would sit in this stairwell and for 30 minutes or an hour, sometimes two hours, I would just thank God for things, specific things. So I would say things like, God, thank you for this bell tower that was open. Thank you for the safe drive over here. Thank you for my amazing wife. Thank you that she makes me laugh. Thank you for my, I would name my kids. I would say thanks for Jack, Eden, Owen, Ace. And then I would get specific, God, thank you for The way that my daughter is becoming like my wife in a lot of ways thank you for that and often it would move me to tears of just noticing the things that go unnoticed and this morning before i go any further often i will end a sermon by encouraging you guys to hey let's Let's practice this together this week. Let's try on this rhythm. Remember last week it was five minutes of silence and and get some time in creation. Well, today I'm going to have you go throughout the room, and you're going to break into tables. And we're going to do a little exercise this morning, okay? So kids get to be involved in this as well. So I just wrote all this down in like literally 30 seconds of, God, thanks for your love. Thanks for coffee. Amen. Thanks for my four amazing kiddos, for loyal friends, for good food, exclamation point, for the smell of pine trees, for golf, that my car works, working vehicles. Uh, Three out of my four grandparents are still alive. For some reason, that came to my mind. God, thanks for that. Thanks for sour candy. I'm a nut for that. That's my addiction, okay? Every time I'm at a gas station, it's like all of my will goes towards not buying sour candy. All these things, less than 30 seconds, I was just, just free-writing all these things. So I thought it'd be cool if you found a post-it throughout the room. I'm going to need some scribes, all right? So Mike, this is you. Jen, you have the best handwriting over there, I'm pretty sure. There you go. Oh, you did it! I'm going to throw this near Carly's feet over there, all right? Um, Barry, you ready? Come on. Liv? Yeah, baby. James? This is a game in and of itself. You guys, um, why don't, Mike and Lisa, why don't you join that table in the back because it's kind of sparse. All right, ready? Nathaniel? Got All right. All the way back. Oh, almost knocked over a coffee. All right. That was almost really bad. All right. So, uh, find a post-it. There's only six of them, so some of you are going to have to share And then just start saying things that you're thankful for off the top of your head. Specific things, okay? Not just, God, you're good. You can say you're good, but why is he good? Why is he good to you, all right? So for like Carly, for instance, you could say, thanks for moments of champagne by a fire. You with me? Yeah, praise God. All right, go ahead. Go throughout a room, find a post-it. I'm going to give you about five minutes here. Go for it. Curtis, can we play some music? Stoke the fire? All right, everybody. You can uh, make your way back to your table. I'm just going to read off a couple of these. Man, Arizona grass, come on. Martin guitars, I love that one. Sleep, please, God, yes. Trader Joe's, my daughter's bunnies up there, Cletus. Yeah, that's his name. Uh, Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm grateful for you, too, John, Mike. Family, uh, what does that say? Mountains. I thought that said man vitamins. Mountains. Yeah, that, too. I'm grateful for man vitamins, too. Dark chocolate, come on. Wine, yes, please. Champagne by the fire, Carly, come on. Yeah, parents. Camping, yes. Good food. This is a weird one. Who the heck put trials down here? Who did that? Boo! Uh, Star Wars. Francine and Ken. Football. Yes. Yeah, flying. Is that from Aiden, I'm assuming? Liv. That's from Liv. Sorry, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You guys know this is an 18-year-old or 19-year-old that's got his pilot's license? Anybody know that? This guy? Yeah. Yeah. Round of applause, Liv. Um, Okay, so... Before I get into today's message, I'm encouraging you this week to keep a list going. So in your journal this week, when you have time in your morning quiet time, or your evenings, just jot down, just kind of free thinking, you know, Nathaniel, like, thanks for Claire. Thanks for the way she does dishes for me. Thanks for, you know, thanks for the way she picks up after me. Thank you for her sweetness that for some reason she loves me and she said yes to marry me. All those things. Right? Whatever might float to the top of your mind, when we practice gratitude personally, it comes out communally. You don't just accidentally become a grateful person, okay? And we're gonna see in Exodus 15 a remarkable story of the people of Israel that should be thankful. They should, by all stretch of the imagination, be super grateful for what God just did. And instead, they become a people of grumbling. But I don't judge them, and neither should you, because we all go through seasons where we grumble instead of leaning into gratitude. Are you with me? All right, so Exodus 15. Let me paint this picture for you. God just did a bunch of miracles to save them out of Egypt. So they've been in slavery for 400 years, okay? you with me? How many years have they been in slavery? Is that a long time? Okay, how old is America? 200? Yeah, they've been in slavery a long time. The nation as a whole has a slavery mindset. That's who they've been. That's who they are. We're talking about two plus million. Have you ever imagined that that's about what the population of Israel was when they left Egypt? That's a lot of people. And in Exodus 15, God leads them, final miracle, through the Red Sea. He saves them. He rescues them in this dramatic fashion. The Red Sea comes crashing down on the Egyptians that are chasing the Israelites. And it says this, when the people of Israel, this is the end of 14, just setting the context here. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before God. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses, and then they sang this song. And so if you can just imagine 2,000 people singing out, I will sing to the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. He's hurled the horse into the sea. They get done singing by saying the Lord will reign forever, forever. Do you hear the gratitude in there? I mean, it literally is bubbling up into song. Why do we sing on Sunday mornings? Sometimes we show up singing because we are grateful, but a lot of us, including myself, we sing to remind ourselves to be grateful. They get done singing, and then they dance. Aaron's sister Miriam gets out a tambourine and dances. Sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. He's hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Dancing is good. Amen, John, Barbara? Yeah, it's good. Two square dancers over there. It's good. They dance to the Lord. The very next verse, Moses begins to lead them out into the desert. So just picture with me. They just witnessed this awesome, beautiful miracle. They're looking at slavery. See ya. No longer slaves. They turn around towards the desert. They realize what they've gotten themselves into with the Lord. They turn around in freedom. It says Moses leads them out away from the Red Sea They moved through the desert. They traveled in this desert for three days. We're talking three days without finding any water. When they came to an oasis, the water was bitter. Can you just imagine that? You ever had bad water? Arizona, Arizona, maybe? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Bitter to drink. They called the place Mara, which means bitter. And then the people complained. And they turned against Moses. Now, who in this room is willing to admit that after three days of marching through the desert and then coming to an oasis that looks like it's gonna be refreshing, then you drink the water and it is not satisfying, it's brutal, that you wouldn't also complain and grumble? And look at your leader and say, what the heck did you just get us into? And the next two chapters are really one story. I'm not going to read all of it. But the next two chapters is God showing up and saying, okay, I'll provide for you in the desert. I'll give you water. The next story is about how (laughs) they arrived on the 15th day of the second month. So we're not even two months into this thing. And this is what the community is saying. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. They moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat. We ate all the bread that we could want. But now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve to death. Now again, the people of Israel are hungry. Not haven't eaten in five hours America hungry. Haven't really eaten well in a month and a half hungry. They are starving. Can you just picture the moms in the group? The dads who are scared, who are not in charge. Maybe they think they should be in charge. They could do a better job leading. And then God provides quail in the desert. He provides food. And they praise him. He also provides what's called manna. It says it was like white Like coriander seed, it tasted like honey wafers. And every day, the people of Israel, Monday, Tuesday, or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they would go out and they would gather up this bread and it would be just enough for that day. Just imagine you going into a grocery store and there was only enough for that day. Opening your fridge, opening your pantry, and it's like, well, I guess this will do for today. Barely but we're going to finish this today. And then it says on Friday, gather two days because I want you to rest on Saturday. And that was the only time that the manna, the bread, wouldn't rot. If they tried to gather more than a day's worth of bread, the Lord said, it's going to rot in jars. Don't even try. What is he doing in the desert? In the Bible, the desert has always been a place of formation. It's always been a place to cultivate trust. Aiden, if you could throw up that slide, it's actually marked See how I move, but it's at the end there. Um, it's not the video, it's that. Yeah. This is Peter Enns' uh, his commentary on Exodus. He says this, "No sooner do the Israelites leave Egypt under the midst of the most miraculous circumstances than they within 1 month of their departure lapse into an old pattern. They again use their old perception of their circumstances." As the standard by which to base reality. How often do we do that? We use our circumstances as the standard to which we base our reality. We do that. It says they still have not learned that even though they're in a desert with no food or water, God is above their circumstances. Y'all, you could follow Jesus for 70 years on this earth. You're going to have to relearn that a million times. But God uses their grumbling, <laughs> so they grumble, it says. But God uses their grumbling as an occasion not to punish his people, but to teach them something about himself. It's easy for us to look down at Israel and say, how, how could you... Complain. How could you grumble against God? But just know that from Exodus 15, 16, and then there's another episode where they need more water. That's how chapter 17 begins. It says, Moses named that place Massah, which means test. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses, and they tested the Lord. And they asked, is the Lord here with us or not? You ever been in a place like that? In your life where you've wondered, is God really with me? Or is he not? And I I just have, I don't have a judgmental bone in my body towards these people. Because from Exodus 15 all the way to Joshua chapter 3, they're wandering in the desert. Count the pages. That's over 200 pages of narrative. Until they cross into the promised land. And I think that you can take the people of Israel out of Egypt, but it's hard to take Egypt out of the people. You can free them from slavery, from depending on the Egyptians for everything that they needed, but man, is it hard to take slavery out of the heart. And it seems to me that God is more interested in their formation than their destination. And how much more true is that of us as followers of Jesus He's also interested in our formation. And that's why, towards the end of the Bible in James chapter 1, it says, thank you for that setup, by the way, whoever wrote that on that post-it. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when testing and trials come of any kind, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why would we do that? Because the desert and trials cultivate trust. There is no way to download that into our souls. We have to go through the desert. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance can grow. So let it grow, and then you will be mature and complete. I thought it'd be helpful, especially for the kids in the room, but mostly the adults, to watch this cartoon for six minutes on why God tests people, what is a test in the Bible and how we can take that opportunity to grow. So let's watch this together.
1: The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. Mm.
2: This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them?
1: Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy.
2: Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble.
1: Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you. And he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind.
2: I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree.
1: Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat
2: of that other tree.
1: Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first things go well. But Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself, and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test.
2: So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test.
1: Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites
2: wander in the wilderness for 40 years.
1: They have lots of opportunities to trust in God to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise, they're not loyal, and eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God,
2: but no one is really qualified.
1: And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends And God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life And
2: so he goes
1: And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test And he prayed to God, please
2: let this test pass from me But not my desire, rather may your desire be done
1: In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with
2: good. Even though it cost him his life.
1: Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing,
2: but... That doesn't mean everything is going to be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest,
1: we're going to face our own tests every day. Right. Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf.
0: Dear brothers and sisters, when trials and tests of many kind come your way, consider it a great opportunity for joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, you have a chance to grow, so let it grow. And then you will be mature and complete, needing nothing. I think I, uh, I tear up in that video because I know in myself how many tests I have failed in my life. And the good news that Jesus passed the test for all of us, that we can be complete, that we can be mature because of his maturity, because of his perfection. And so every Sunday, we take a little bit of time and we eat the bread that represents his body and we dip it in the juice that represents his blood and we let it nourish us as we remember, God, you are the one who provided Everything we needed. You did not abandon us. You have not abandoned us in the wilderness. And every test we have is an opportunity to surrender to you. And so before you get up and take the elements today, would you just take a moment and thank God for the ultimate gift in his son Jesus. That he didn't hold back his only son so that we could have life and life to the fullest. So let me pray, and then whenever you're ready, you can take communion. Father, thank you for the little voices in this room, the little kids that remind us that that's how we can come to you. Jesus, whatever you meant by let them become like children in their faith, may you be childlike in your faith. Would we approach the communion table with that, knowing that when we open the fridge of life, God, you've provided enough. For those of us in the room that have doubted you this week, including myself. For those of us who have complained and grumbled and said, God, you're not doing a good enough job. Would you forgive us? When you turn our hearts back towards you as the great provider, the great father that you are. And I know for people in this room, sometimes saying our father in heaven, that's hard. It is hard because of the experience we had with our own fathers. And so this morning, what I pray is, would we let you determine what fatherhood really is instead of our own earthly fathers and not the other way around. You are a father who provides. You're a father who protects. You're a father who is pure in motives. You love us. And so in this time of communion, may we receive that love. May it nourish us to be sent out this week. Not only so that we can trust you, but so that we can lead others to trust you. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Life and Rhythm podcast. If you'd like to know more about Rhythm Community Church, you can go online at rhythm.community. Peace.